Welcome to Knowing Nature. I'm your host, Victor. In this podcast, I speak with environmental educators and people in the environmental sector about their practices and perspectives on helping people to connect with the natural world. This episode is the second in a series for LGBTQ History Month here in the UK. These episodes are exploring the relevance of people's identity in environmental education and natural history. Natural history museums are a fantastic way to learn about nature. They allow you to look at the natural world in ways which are not always easy or otherwise possible. For instance, specimens might be collected from parts of the world where few people will ever get to visit, like the deep oceans. And museums also preserve a record of nature and animals which can stretch back for hundreds of years and offer insights which would not otherwise be able to be seen. But museums are not just repositories. They curate and display their collections, and in doing so they put together and convey narratives. Now it's impossible to tell every story at once, so by necessity some will get left out, or in some cases purposefully suppressed. And in the same way which you might find some books which don't engage your interest or speak to your experience, some communities might not engage with museums because they don't see themselves or their interests reflected in the museum's interpretation. Tours can be a relatively straightforward way for museums to bring out different narratives and to engage with a wider range of people. Tours are inherently more flexible than printed interpretation panels and provide museums with opportunities to try out different narratives and see how visitors respond. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with the Museum of Zoology in Cambridge about their Bridging Binaries tours, which have been put together to bring out LGBTQ themes and narratives from their collection. My guest today is Jack Ashby, author and assistant director of the University Museum of Zoology in Cambridge. Welcome to the podcast. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Today, we're talking about the Bridging Binaries tours, which are offered at the Cambridge University Museums and specifically at the Cambridge Museum of Zoology. But before we dive into that, it's always nice to get to know our guests first. So could you tell us a bit about yourself and maybe a memory of your interest in natural history being sparked? So, as you said, I'm the assistant director of the Museum of Zoology in Cambridge. That means that I have kind of an overview of, of how our visitors experience the museum and um, also how we care for our collections uh, behind the scenes. But zoology has been like, I was one of those nerdy natural history children, uh, you know, my mum would always talk about finding like owl pellets and you know, lumps of moss in my coat pockets when when I was really young so like a lot of my life has been has been revolving around um animals particularly um and my kind of corner of zoology now is Australian mammals so I spend well when I'm allowed to spend a lot of time in Australia working with NGOs and and universities there to understand the ecology of, of Australian mammals um and my other kind of big research interest is how museums present nature so you know, if we if we assume that museums are kind of scientific windows on the world, I kind of like to unpick that and see what biases kind of affect how uh, natural history is communicated to the public in museums. So how how the kind of way we present nature changes its standing in society and how we understand it and things like that. 
Yeah, so I think that research interest is going to be particularly relevant today because I think a lot of people sort of think of natural history and the sciences as just like a, a listing of facts. So in the past, we knew less facts and now we know more. Um, and so I was wondering if you might be able to talk a, a little bit more about the way in which um, people have understood natural history and how that's changed over time. Uh, that's an interesting one because has it changed over time? Probably. What I what I think is interesting is that you know, like, so there's an you know, take any given animal. There's an infinite number of facts about that animal, and in natural museums, we not only choose which animals to put on display. So we you know we don't display all animals equally. You go to any naturalist museum, and it is full of you know dinosaurs and mammals, but actually those only represent a really really tiny slice of life on Earth today. You know, eighty percent of of animals alive today are Oh, arthropods, you know. So how many of those museums, how many museums actually represent nature in that way? But also, like, if you think about all those facts you could tell about nature, we choose which ones to say. And what we choose to say about them is, you know, you might think it's, okay, well, some facts are just more interesting than others, but actually there are going to be biases in who chooses to tell what facts and what facts we actually might hide uh, deliberately or subconsciously. And that's going to be one of the things we talk about in Bridging Binaries. But how have things changed? I think like just the way that natural history is displayed is, I would hope, a lot more engaging than it was, uh, you know, 150 plus years ago when a lot of museums were being founded. But but also, there's a bit of a trend, or there was a bit of a trend at least up until about 10 years ago, to display less stuff. So you might see more kind of models and uh, animatronic stuff in museums rather than real specimens. And I'm not necessarily sure that that's the right way to go, but I suppose it depends how you display them. That's the big question. Yeah, certainly I remember there was a wave of museums tending to put together dioramas to display their specimens in, and, and whereas now I think a lot of museums are moving towards um, fewer specimens and it being displayed you know, very plainly in glass cases. Now, I personally think that's a bit of a shame, but that might be because uh, I grew up with those museum dioramas display, so there's maybe a, a nostalgia element there, but that's certainly something that's changed. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a real, like, yeah, taxidermy in general came out of fashion. And then, as you say, dioramas, so taxidermy kind of in their, in their habitats is even more out of fashion. But um, it's funny because at the same time, like today, you know, you go to a hipster cafe and it's full of taxidermy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's a, I think it's coming back in both. The pilots of the Bridging Binaries tours, uh, at least at the Cambridge Museum, started back in uh, 2019. I was wondering if you could give us a little bit more background into the program and also maybe the name Bridging Binaries as well. Sure. So I think that we we were very much inspired by the the V&A Museum. So um, they ran a series of tours exploring LGBTQ plus themes in, in the V&A led by uh, Dan Vo is the person that put those um, tours together. And we actually then commissioned Dan to um, work with us to develop some content for tours around a few of our museums, including the Museum of Zoology. But here, here in Cambridge, we have Fitz the Fitzwilliam Museum, as I say, the Museum of Zoology, um, Museum of, Class of Classical Archaeology, Museum of Anthropology and Archaeology, of Archaeology and Anthropology, Cedric Museum of Earth Sciences, History of Science Museum. So we started with four museums, but now all of them have been running LGBTQ plus tours. Just to explore... A few different things. And in our case, uh, the very explicit aims of doing these tours in the Zoology Museum were really threefold. So it's to show one of these biases that I was talking about earlier, show how knowledge of same-sex sexual behaviour among animals has been 
deliberately hidden from the scientific discourse, which is pretty significant because I don't just mean hidden from like the public, but actually like not published by, in, in the scientific community. So that, that effectively means that the scientific understanding of how animals behave and how the natural world is, is prejudiced by human social biases. That's pretty significant. This is one aim. The other aim is, is to show um, how perspectives from LGBTQ plus scientists help us understand nature, that those perspectives bring really valuable insights into, into the natural world. And finally, just to kind of counter the you know, homophobic suggestion that, that homosexuality is against nature. I'm first to say that LGBTQ plus people don't need to look to the animal kingdom or anywhere else to justify themselves. But just being able to, to demonstrate that actually so many animals exhibit same-sex sexual behavior it is absolute nonsense to say that homosexuality is against nature. So those are the three aims. And you asked about the, the, the title, Bridging Binaries. It comes into that, the question about how how LGBTQ plus uh, perspectives can um, shape how we understand nature. And, and the point there is that, you know, the, the human social world is very keen on putting things in, in box reads. So the you know, binaries of straight or gay or male or female, um, those sciences often try to kind of squeeze descriptions of the animal world into these constrained boxes. And if, if we kind of let those boxes go a bit, we can understand what's going on in nature uh, a lot better. And LGBTQ plus perspectives help us do that. What are the binaries in natural history that you're hoping this program will bridge? One of the topics we talk about in, in our tour in the Museum of Zoology is about gender and sex. Um, so the very first thing you see when you come in the museum is a, a, a 21 meter long fin whale. So it's, you know, fin whales are huge, second biggest uh, animal alive today, second biggest species of whale after blue whales. That's kind of hanging above you when you come in the museum. So it's a great introduction to this, to the tour. Um, and we talk about the fact that in whales and dolphins and porpoises, it's quite um, a number of specimens have been found, a number of individuals have been found with both male and female plumbing, if you like, reproductive anatomy, or male um, plumbing but female chromosomes, or vice versa. So, if you know, and, and also whales because they're streamlined aquatic mammals, they're they have in them their you know penis and and um, genitals are internal that are kind of protecting little flaps so that they are don't have very obvious external characteristics but so they're, they're kind of the notion that there are just men and females is, is very much complicated by that fact and we talk about um the work of uh scientist joan roughgarden who who works a lot on the architecture of genitals and and argues for the existence of more than two genders joan roughgarden is also a transgender person who says that her transition um, has very much influenced her, her view of biology into her, which are kind of try and break down these social constructs of how that are come from the human world, but uh, that are influencing how we understand animals. So you highlighted one story there that was brought out because of the perspective uh, of a, a trans scientist and their transition. I was wondering if you had uh, maybe another example of a narrative that was brought out because of an LGBTQ plus perspective. In the news, you see giraffes described as the gayest animals on earth, and and you know, like you know, like just because like I don't I don't think it's necessarily sensible to describe animals as gay or straight. That you know, it's there's a a really famous quote from biologist 
Eric Anderson. Um, who says that animals don't do sexual identity, they just do sex. Um, <laughs> but anyway, talking about giraffes and um, the reason that they get that, that gayest animals on Earth moniker is that something like 94% of all um, sexual encounters between giraffes are, are same sex. Um, so I think it's actually it's mostly male. So it's not about 90% of sexual uh, encounters are male-male. And this kind of came to light by, uh, because of a, of a scientist called Anne, Anne, Anne Innes Dagg, who was working in Africa in the 1950s. She's actually the first scientist to describe any animal behavior in the wild in Africa. And, you know, and, and by that token, also the first person to study giraffes in the wild in Africa. And she described these mounting between male giraffes, um, but also the much more common behavior is called necking. And that's when giraffes, kind of male giraffes, line up almost face to face, side by side, and you know, sensuously rub their necks together, um, and sniffing each other, becoming aroused. And it's very, it's very clearly, if you allow yourself to interpret that way, it's sexual behavior. What, um, one of the things that Anna Nistag is a great advocate for LBT, LGBTQ plus rights and, and kind of countering this notion that, that homosexuality is against nature. She also talked about how the way that sexual behaviors in animals are altered by human social prejudices. So if a male giraffe or any animal, I guess, um, went up and kind of sniffed the genitals of a female giraffe, that would be, uh, you know, class, that would, some, that would be described as a sexual behavior or at least a primarily sexual behavior. Whereas if a scientist observed a male giraffe uh, sniffing the genitals of another male giraffe or necking or mounting uh, among male giraffes, what, you, what would happen is that in the textbooks on scientific literature, that is primarily gets described as a kind of dominance behavior, that like that there's something else going on that isn't primarily sexual. And there's no justification for that beyond the fact that the scientists didn't want to write that, that there was some same-sex sexual behavior going on. And those kind of social prejudices obviously influence how we understand nature. And she also talked about how, and in this is also talked about how the kind of language of female animals being described as coy or, you know, flirtatious or femme fatales. Uh, like that's, those are all human constructs, whereas a male get described as kind of dominant and virile. And like that science kind of language not only isn't very good for kind of the science, but also uh, builds up and perpetuates human social notions of, of, of gender stereotype, builds a class hierarchy, if you like, a hierarchy between male and female people. So that's another, that's another thing we talk about in the museum. So in one of the recent Attenborough series, uh, there is a sequence with giraffes and they're, you're shown these male giraffes and they're whacking each other with their nets and it's, it's shown as a, a dominance display. And, and while there is that behavior that's out there, it's, it's not the full extent of the behavior or it's not the only way to interpret that behavior. Absolutely. Yeah. Male, giraffe, male giraffes kind of fight, like if you think like male uh, deer clashing antlers, yeah, male giraffes also whack their heads and necks against each other. We're only shown that one aspect of it. And so it's a way yeah. in which that the narrative that we're shown is limited. Exactly. So you've got the Bridging Binaries tours. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about how the program works and if it's changed the way in which uh, people interact with the collections, either as volunteers or, or as visitors. Sure. So I mean, so as I said, it's been going on for years across University of Cambridge Museums and the overriding aim, they talked about what our aim is in, is the scientific museum. Are, but 
our overriding aim across the University of Cambridge Museums is to kind of make it abundantly clear if it wasn't already that um, LGBTQ plus people are, are very welcome in our museums and what contributions that they've made and they should feel our museums are very safe spaces. And it's great that this has been, developed. the content of the tours has been developed, firstly, in, in our case, um, by Dan Vo, and then and, and the content that Dan produces passed on to the volunteers. So it's kind of like a um, a starting point for them to choose their own tour. So, so the kind of the book, the pack of cards, if you like, of stories that they've got to tell. They can pick those that they want to research more deeply or incorporate in their tours um, to, to give their own perspectives and to um, have conversations about the very much the small group tours. They're very much con- conversation based with uh, participants of the tours. We've been evaluating and, and the you know the impact's been really great. People people say like mostly talk about the kind of how interesting the content is, but there is definite like it is really valuable to think about this, both for you know, obviously anyone's welcome to the tour, both people who identify as LGBTQ plus or or not. The evaluation is saying that it's really valuable for both sets of people, either in, in kind of understanding what the what the LGBTQ community has has contributed to science and the perspectives that they bring but also in just kind of understanding and recognizing that scientists science can be a biased process and obviously only by recognizing it can we start to change that um and I, I'm, you know i'm sure i'm sure things are significantly better when they were than they were in some of the accounts we read from kind of 100 years ago when or yeah when the first first published accounts of same-sex annual sexual behavior were, were coming out um the turn of the 20th century. Some institutions, when they put on tours, either by staff or volunteers, will hand over a script or at least a list of key points for the prospective guide to learn and then repeat. Um, personalization then comes about in the individual guide, maybe emphasizing certain things or dwelling on specific stories or objects which really speak to them. Um, and of course, then there's also responding to the interests of the people who are on the tour, of course. Uh, but the relationship between the museum and the tour guide is um, often weighted very much towards the institution providing a narrative, which the guide then delivers. Is that the way the relationship is is structured at the um, Cambridge Museum of Zoology? Nuts and bolts wise, yeah. It's, we've built up a kind of skeleton, excuse the pun, of, of content um, that people can choose from. But yeah, it's it's then up to the volunteer to say, okay, I want to say a bit more about this or, you know, a lot of our volunteers are students, well, some of our volunteers have been students at the university, so they might then bring in some of their own research, whether that's in kind of history of art or or we've got some of our own PhD students who run the tours in the museum. So they might spend a little more time because obviously, like, when you come to the University of Cambridge and you get the opportunity to meet some of the researchers there, then it's always a great opportunity for people to, to kind of really get them to know the people that are, about the cutting edge of research as well as the, the bulk of the content of the tours. Particularly with touchier or maybe um, more politically fraught subjects, there's a tendency for institutions to really want to um, control the information that uh, they or their representatives are, are giving out to the general public. And handing over some of that control to the communities which the museum is trying to represent can be like a really vulnerable position for the institution to be in. And I'm wondering how you've navigated that um, that relationship when it comes to the LGBTQ plus uh, community and, and these tours. 
I mean, sure. I'm sure. Yeah, it's a it's a consideration when you're not in control of of the interpretation, is what we call it. You know, the information that we give it, uh, give to visitors. In our case, like the stories that we talk about are broadly about zoology or animals. So they're not particularly in this for this tour. They're not particularly kind of University Museum of Zoology Cambridge stories. They're not our academics or our pre, you know, our, our researchers that have been biased against. Uh, LGBTQ plus representation, but there are that is the case in other museums in Cambridge that they're telling very specific stories about them. But we, you know, it's been wholeheartedly embraced by every level of of management across the museums, and it's something we're doing quite generally. You know, we're looking at our legacies of empire and enslavement in the museums and across the whole university at the moment. It's I think it, we can't con- you know function as relevant parts of society if we're not kind of uh, honest or open to um, exploring aspects of our past. But I guess for me, the most challenging thing isn't about kind of the contentious nature of the of the narratives, of the stories that are picking up. It's it's checking that, well, not checking. My, my worry is only ever when like, oh, have they actually kind of phrased this correctly? Because, you know, I, you know, I talk to people about that just all the time, but I know that... I'll get my facts wrong sometimes. You misremember, you know, there's only so much we can remember. And just letting go of that control um, is is more worrying than the kind of the specifics of this content and the, the fact that it is a more socially, well, I, I don't know if contentious is the word, you know, I mean, you know, so this is, there is, there are political aspects to the story. I'm, I don't think anyone's too worried about that side of thing because it's the right thing to do. It's just, you know, the, the, pernickety scientist science communicator in me is, is, is more worried about oh if we if we checked all these facts about penguins or whatever um, <laughs> yeah i definitely know how that goes i mean especially when it's a subject that you're really familiar with or you talk about it all the time it's really easy on a tour to wander down the path of getting really distracted by the specifics of like exactly which species or you know does x behavior occur in what proportion of the population and maybe some people are interested but for others they you know they just want to move on to the next subject um another perspective that uh i've been thinking about is this perspective that uh, you know this is a natural history museum it should just be about the science it should be about animals and plants and the environment meanwhile lgbtq plus those are human social constructs those are human identities what is the relevance to natural history there um ha- have you encountered that kind of perspective how have you responded to um uh people who might have those kinds of comments yeah and uh, we've we've had you know we get we get enormous amounts of positive feedback about this but we have had very occasional one or two people saying, oh, what is the relevance of the sexual identity of the visitor or the scientist that we're talking about? Why, why should that uh, be important? And on those rare occasions where we have had that feedback, it's <laughs> once we've explained the answer, it's like, oh, okay, thank you. I, I do understand. And I, like, it's, it's very easy to, I think it's very easy to understand that so that human social prejudices do actually creep into the way we talk about animals in the way that I've already described. But I just think understanding that it's not like here is something interesting that someone discovered. Oh, and they're also a gay man. Like that isn't how we, how we do it. That isn't what's interesting, but it might be interesting to say that someone's 
lived experience as an LGBTQ plus scientist has enabled them to bring a specific perspective. Like when I talked about Joan Roughgarden and, and her interpretations of, of um, or her, her analysis of, of whales and dolphins, but just saying that sometimes really, really well-known scientific accounts or scientists have been deliberately changing their published data in order to mask the fact that some animals exhibit same-sex sexual behavior, I think surprises people and actually gives them a perspective on, you know, science Science is great, but it isn't um, a unbiased, entirely rational process. And I think, yeah, it's it's kind of, once you realize that we're not just interested in, in saying, oh, this person was, you know, this had this uh, identity, then... It, it, it's very easy to kind of explain or explain why this is a valuable process. That's really interesting. So, in some ways, the the science side of it, that that perspective provides you a way to um, to answer the the criticism itself, because it is about these are observations of the natural world. This is the data that we've collected, um, but the way in which it's been interpreted or, or represented in in the literature has been skewed, and so that all provides a way to uh, explain the relevance of doing tours like this. Exactly that. Yeah, so I mean, the best example of that is, well, it's kind of perhaps the first example of that is is with penguins, which are, you know, very famously right, in the news often that you know there are same sex pairs of penguins in zoos, something like one in five zoo penguin pairs are same sex, um, and the reason we talk about penguins so much in when it comes to LGBTQ plus stories in the natural world, penguins are kind of a go to, and it's because partly because of the zoo animal. Um, aspect of it and that there are kind of books written about it um but also as i say one of the first accounts in the scientific literature of same-sex sexual behavior is is among penguins and it's from the scott uh, captain scott's terranova exhibition in um 1910 um and george levick was one of the members of that expedition and he was observing the daily penguins in antarctica which is the biggest population of penguins of Adeli penguins in Antarctica and describing their myriad sexual behaviors. And it was, he writes, he writes that it was only when this, I'm paraphrasing, but only when he was watching a pair of penguins having sex and then the one on top got off and they swapped positions. Only then did he realize, um, realize what was going on, you know, the, the nature of this encounter or something like he said this, but he, uh, he went on to kind of describe quite a lot of, of, uh, same-sex sexual behaviors among penguins and, you know, says, is there, is there no crime too low for these animals? But what's kind of where this comes into the story is not only was it the first kind of scientific account, but the account was actually overwritten in, in Greek, uh, by Levick so that it wouldn't um so that only really an like, educated gentleman would understand it and then he also published he well so he didn't publish he also produced um a paper in 1915 that was just has just been rediscovered at Tring in the naturist the naturist museum in Tring um which was about the sexual behaviors of the penguins but it's it's scored at the top not for publication um they made 100 copies uh, and they just found it uh, a few years ago in, in Tring. And it's like it's a very deliberate decision, firstly, to kind of hide his 
field accounts by writing them in Greek, and then secondly, not to publish this data. Um, and I think that's, that's kind of extraordinary to that. He could write many other things about the behavior of penguins, and he's you know created made massive contributions to to penguin science from his time there. But he chose to just to just to um, hide some of the, his findings just because he didn't think it would. Well, who knows why? He didn't think it would go down well, or perhaps it would reflect badly on him. Maybe, or um, maybe it's just too scandalous for like polite society. Yeah. Um, I've only recently just started watching Downton Abbey, and it's really interesting to see the differences in uh, what scandalizes the upstairs folk versus the folks downstairs. So it's interesting to think about there. So the other question I wanted to ask is whether you had any advice for other institutions who are thinking of starting up similar tours, um, any advice on how to navigate some of the early pitfalls in, in setting up a program like this? Well, I'd say advice-wise, it's, it's pretty obvious with any, with any project like this where you're trying to elevate one particular narrative, one particular group of people, and that is to work with the, those people to, to make sure that you're representing them um, properly. Uh, so in this case, that means, yeah, make sure you've got a good group of people from the LGBTQ plus community to, to kind of say, okay, to help choose your stories and to help frame those stories and to sense check and to, um, yeah, to, to make sure you're getting the message, the message is coming across in a, in a constructive way. Um, I'd say that was the, the number one crucial side of it, but, but also like, I think, yeah, I don't know. We've, we have talked to a number of museums who have then taken uh, taken this this theme on because it's such a huge, obviously such a massive group of society who've been under underwritten. Uh, that's not the word. Who've been <laughs> written out of um, of uh, the history of science in our case, but in the history of any museum discipline. Uh, it's just do, you know, just just get on with it um, and see and <laughs> see what happens. It's it's you know, it's been a really valuable experience for me and for the rest of the team here. And I think I hope it's making a difference to our audiences as well, but also how we think about what we write and what what goes out in the galleries. Have the tours changed what you put out into the galleries? Not yet. What we plan to do is um, we we're, we're creating a series of trails. So we've got the tour is a physical tour. You can come on it, you know, twice a month. But we want it to have a, a permanent representation, you know, physical representation, so that anyone who wants to at any time can can come experience it so we're, we're we're kind of converting that content we will be converting that content into a physical trail but it's part of a kind of library of trails where we're choosing you know you can come from a, a different theme so we have you know a women in science trail we have uh perhaps we haven't done this but you know perhaps a you know an architect's view of, of the natural world um but the lgbtq plus view of the natural world is one we'll be doing next um with our, our kind of our young zoologist club have made their own trail so we want to create this this library for kind of so people can come back and explore a different theme every time and that will have a, both you know physical things you'll see on the cases as well as something you carry around with you or have on your phone yeah i always love when museums or sites have that kind of an option i guess i've seen it most often in uh, audio tour guides where you you know you've got a guide you're wandering around the house and you can uh, kind of experience it from different perspectives. So if it's a stately home, maybe from a servant's perspective or from someone upstairs perspective, and one, it gives you a reason to to come back and visit again, but two, it, it means that the visitor can choose a narrative that resonates to them and for whatever reason. 
Exactly. Yeah, that's the hope. Have you had any missteps or uh, maybe narratives that um, were percolating along for for a little while, but then you kind of spoke to the the right person and they brought up that actually you, you probably don't want to present that narrative quite in that way because of whatever the reason is. Is that something that you've encountered? Not that I can remember. Not that I can remember. There is there is something that you sometimes spot the volunteers or the volunteers have said also themselves, I've noticed myself doing this. And that's that if if the volunteer kind of takes the stop on the tour that's about chimps and bonobos and bonobos particularly, which are kind of another a very very you know another species of ape very closely related to chimpanzees very similar to chimpanzees only relatively recently discovered but they're very sexual animals so their sex is part of pretty much every interaction between them it's called you know sex is, is known as the, the bonobo handshake because we're we're delivering the and so and the the description <laughs> because we're delivering these tours in the public galleries during opening times normally at a weekend so we have a lot of family visitors around and sometimes the tour guides like, should I be barking these, from bark is not what I wear, you know, should I be elevating my voice and presenting in the galleries when we're talking about quite graphic um, sexual behaviours? And they're not, you're not hesitating because they are same-sex sexual behaviours, but it's because, you know, we don't typically talk about sex of any kind out loud in front of children. So that is the only, like, how do we grapple this? Um, grip with that because I can appreciate that that might not be what you experience, expect to experience when you're walking around the museum. Um, and it's, it's generally, I think they kind of try and pick their moments to, when there's a, to, to talk about it or to lower their voices and get people to gather in. Um, but, you know, we, we children are welcome on the tours too. So I guess we can adapt those. <laughs> Especially when the reproductive anatomy you know, uses the same words, the same language as, as human anatomy. I can see how that definitely can become a, a, a bit tricky. Exactly, exactly. Another question, I guess, roughly along the same lines is, uh, is there language that you're careful not to use or to use in very specific ways when you are on these tours? The example that I'm thinking about is um, that of gendered pronouns. And the example that I've been thinking about recently is the example of bees, where you have these two kinds of um, female bees, right? You've got the queen bees and then the, the worker bees. So if you use she to refer to them, uh, is that is that a useful term at all? Or is it potentially, um, you know, is it too much of an oversimplification when you're talking about these? So I think it's a tricky one. Tour guides typically have a conversation about um, some of the language they're using when they when they start and what they mean by queer or you know they talk about pronoun and their pronouns as well. In the animal kingdom, yeah, it's tricky because we are, although we are kind of questioning and opening up for for analysis the the notion of binary genders, um, we still do consistently, as you say, talk about male and female, um, and I'm not sure of the way around that. Because if we're trying to unpick gender stereotypes, doing that without talking about any genders is specifically is problematic. Yeah. And bees is a kind of an easy one, if you like, because there are ways to talk about because very, very specific roles. Whereas that's not always the case with a lot of other animals. So personally, I'm not sure how we'd, we'd run that. Yeah, it's certainly a challenging one. Is there any similar language that you're careful to navigate around? 
you know, like I said at the start, we we are careful not to like. Well, at least I am. And the, the tour guides can you know pick and choose what they choose to say. But yeah, like describing animal behavior as as gay or straight or even homosexual. You know, I I prefer saying same sex sexual behavior because there's no loading um on that. But that I think that's that's a relatively easy one to think about. But yeah, we 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 tend to explain what we mean. I mean, queer is obviously is, is a word that's used um, for people to identify with, but also as a slur and for, for closely related reasons. Um, so we talk about that and what we mean by that, because we, assume, we don't assume that everyone that's coming on the tour is a kind of well-read on LGBTQ plus rights or identifies as LGBTQ plus. So we think it's useful to kind of ground the language that we're talking in an open place, but also we do give people a chance to kind of feed into if there are any particular things that they're worried that we'd rather avoid talking about um, mm. that, that um, there's the opportunity to do that as well to adapt the tour. So I think that brings us to the end of the questions that I had. Um, are there any other things that uh, you'd like people to know uh, about the tours of the program? I guess the most important thing to say is, yeah, that come come March um, 2022, the tours will, will be run, running again. So if, if people are in Cambridge, particularly at the weekends, it'd be great to, to, to get them booked, to, to book yourselves on there. They're free. I think they're great. <laughs> so if you're in, in town, come to zoology and then coming we're we're starting in march but the other museums are, are bringing their tours back throughout the different points throughout the year a load of different museums to visit and um, exploring these things well thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today it's been a really interesting conversation and i hope that it helps other institutions who are thinking about putting in lgbtq plus uh tours or uh, any other programming to to get that ball rolling uh, so thank you again for for coming on the show Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's really, really nice.